Welcome to the Next Gen Minds podcast, a podcast for young people by young people, exploring issues of well-being and mental health. I'm your host, Maddie Clark. I'll be talking to students, experts and other special guests about mental health. We'll bust some myths, find out the best ways to manage our well-being and, if all else fails, manifest our way to sanity. So, without further ado, let's start talking and make a change. Welcome back to Next Gen Minds podcast. I'm your host, Maddie Clark, and today I'll be talking to Barry Grimes, the Communications Manager for Happier Lives Institute. Barry is a Durham alumni, having studied social sciences at Durham University. He went on to take roles in the NHS and organised EA Global and EAGX conferences at the Centre for Effective Altruism before joining Happier Lives in 2018. Today, I'll be talking to Barry about the Happier Lives Institute mission, how we can improve global well-being, and the Institute's most recent research. So thank you, Barry, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I thought I'd just start off by asking you, what is the Happier Lives Institute and like what's its mission? Yeah, sure. So Happier Lives Institute conducts research on how to measure and increase well-being. And In the past, people have used metrics like GDP or health metrics to try and work out how to help people as much as possible. Um, But we use subjective well-being measures. So these are people's self-reports of their happiness and their life satisfaction. And we use that data to figure out what actually makes a difference to people's well-being in their own terms. And then what are the most cost-effective ways to increase their well-being as a result? I think it is such a great initiative. And what really interests me is the fact that you focus on subjective well-being and the most cost-effective way of achieving the highest subjective well-being. And it seems to me that HLI is contributing to effective altruism, how to do the most good in the world. And I was wondering why HLI specifically chose subjective well-being over other measures of altruistic good, like happiness or utility. Yeah, so we're part of the effective altruism community. And what people try to do in effective altruism is figure out how to do the most good. And I think ever since I've been involved in that community, I've been interested in the question, how do we define good? Um, Because that's fundamental. How can you increase it if you don't really know what it is? Um, And people have different conceptions of what good is. Um, So there are charity evaluators like GiveWell, Um, who will try to find the most effective charities in the world, but they focus on metrics such as like number of lives saved or how much income has increased. Um, But if you only rely on those metrics, you can miss things. Um, So for example, like mental health, um, if you treat someone for depression, the benefit isn't that like their income goes up. The, The benefit is that they don't feel depressed anymore. I mean, there's lots of other benefits as well, but If you don't have a metric that's taking that into account, then you can end up neglecting big issues. And so this is why we decided to set up an organization focused specifically around happiness and well-being. Um, Because if you do compare different interventions in this way, then it can reveal things that have previously been neglected. And the other aspect of using well-being is that you can use it as a common unit to compare very different types of things. So you can say, well, how much does a thousand pounds improve somebody's life? And how much does 
like cataract surgery improve someone's life. Um, and if you're measuring these two things with separate metrics, then it's hard to know, like, if you only have a thousand pounds, which one would you spend it on the, the cash or the cataract, which ones does most good. And so often people have just had to like make guesses um, about which one they think is better just based on their intuitions. But if we use well-being, then we can measure both of those interventions in the same unit and see, well, which one of these is going to increase their well-being the most. And then you can start to do effectiveness comparisons between very different things. Why specifically uh, subjective well-being? Because I was doing I've been doing a little bit of research. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and there's obviously so many different ways that you can measure well-being. Mm -hmm. Why specifically subjective well-being? Is it better than anything else out there? Yeah, I mean, well, the thing about subjective well-being is that it is subjective. So you're relying on people to tell you like what it feels like to be them at that moment or in their life overall. Um, and that we don't currently have any kind of objective measure where someone could like scan you with an instrument and it will tell you like what your scale is on <laughs> happiness. Like we we have to rely on people's subjective reports. But I think in the past, people were quite skeptical of anything that was subjective and figured that actually we couldn't rely on these measures but there's been a lot of work in academia over the last 30 years or so to develop measures that are kind of reliable and valid and they do measure the things that we care about um, and so we can actually like start to use this data um, and rather than kind of take a proxy measure like income or health we can actually just ask people like how are you feeling um, how satisfied are you with your life and um, and then use that information to improve their life so when you ask people that these like subjective questions mm -hmm. um how do you turn that kind of subjective answer into something that you can kind of quantify in your research is there like numbers you assign to it or is it kind of more qualitative mm, yes so there are a lot of different measures and that this is one problem with the field being quite early lots of different studies and academics like use different measures or they invent new things but Broadly, I think the most common measure that people would use is the life satisfaction scale. So they do these global surveys of people across all the countries in the world for things like the World Happiness Report. And they'll ask people on a scale of zero to 10, how satisfied are you with your life overall? And so we would call that a, an evaluative measure. So you're looking at everything in the round, like how would you rate your satisfaction with life? Um, but there are this other set of measures um, which we would call hedonic measures or effect. Um, and you can have positive or negative effects. And these are more linked to kind of your feelings in the moment. So do I feel good right now? Do I feel sad? Do I just feel like neutral? And so those scales tend to be on a kind of a plus to a minus. So you could be like minus five or plus five. But there, there's a lot of variation. There's also a lot of different measures related specifically to mental health and anxiety, um, which enable clinicians to kind of make diagnoses. Um, but again, yeah, lots of variation. I think one of the most common mental health ones is called the PHQ-9. And if any of your listeners has ever like done a, I don't know, like a CBT course um, through, their, through their doctor or something, you may have done this where it's like, maybe like nine different questions about like, how did you feel today? And then you tick on a scale on these nine different domains and then they tally up the score. So yeah, lots of different measures. Um, and so we have to try and like combine all these when we do our studies and, and like read across them.
this is something that you do in your in the research you have been doing mm-hmm. at the moment you the one most recent one is comparing the cost effectiveness of psychotherapy and cash transfers yes that's right um so could you talk to me a bit more about that and how you've been using subjective well-being in that research and what firstly let's start with a good question why did the happy lives institute go into this research specifically why compare cash transfers and psychotherapy it sounds seems like completely two different interventions what drove the institute to do that yeah of course so so the first thing is that we're aiming to do the most good we can with the limited resources we have and so um charity evaluator like give well have already done a lot of research into like highly effective charities and the reason we pick cash transfers is because like give well and also in the broader development sector cash transfers are a very strongly evidence-based and effective intervention and there's been lots of studies that show the effects of cash transfers on a range of different metrics not just in terms of well-being but in other positive benefits in people's lives and so give well use cash transfers as their baseline so if they're going to recommend a charity it needs to be at least eight times as cost effective as cash transfers provided by a charity called give directly And so the first thing we needed to do was establish our baseline, but in terms of subjective well-being. So we looked at all the studies that have ever been done on cash transfers that also asked people about their subjective well-being. And we did um, a systematic review and meta-analysis where you take all of the data from all of these studies and combine it and do various economic analytical things to it. Not my area, but we have very smart people who do these things. Um, and so, yeah, we published a paper and it came out in Nature Human Behaviour um, just a few months ago. And we found that cash transfers, they do have a, a small but a positive effect on people's well-being. And this is specifically looking at people in like very low income settings. So people living in extreme poverty rather than kind of across the broader world. And um, so we had our benchmark and then what we wanted to do was test our hypothesis that we think psychotherapy and mental health have been neglected because Mm -hmm. people haven't been using well-being measures and so we wanted to have a look at the psychotherapy studies do the same kind of process gather as much data as we could on these studies and particularly looking at psychotherapy in low-income countries and delivered in a way where it's not like a person going for a one-on-one appointment with a psychiatrist we're talking about group sessions um, where it's led by a lay person or community worker who's been trained because in many of these countries there's hardly any trained mental health professionals at all and so if you want to deliver these services at scale you need to train people who aren't clinicians but who can deliver these kind of services so we looked at all the data for this and we crunched the numbers and then so we took we then measured psychotherapy in terms of subjective well-being um, and we had the data on cash transfers in terms of subjective well-being. And then we just compared the two. Um, and what we found is, so when you take those interventions like in the broadest sense, so all of the cash transfers and all of the psychotherapy studies we looked at, um, we found that psychotherapy is nine times more cost effective than cash transfers, mm-hmm. um, mostly because it's just much cheaper. So like cash transfers are generally about $1,000 to to get the effect on the well-being but you can do the group psychotherapy for much cheaper because you're delivering it in groups with community health workers Um, and it has a slightly 
larger effect than cash transfers as well. But predominantly, a lot of it is coming from the fact it's a lot cheaper. Um, and then we did this analysis for two specific charities. So we looked at Give Directly specifically, and then we looked at a charity called Strong Minds, which does group therapy in Uganda and Zambia. Um, and in that case, we found that Strong Minds is 10 times more cost effective than Give Directly. Wow. And so what this means, if you're working on like the GiveWell principle that they would fund things that are eight times better than Give Directly, we think we found something that meets that bar. And so it could be one of the most effective ways to help people, not just if you're interested in mental health, just in general, if you want to improve people's lives, you're getting a lot of bang for your buck. It's crazy that that difference, because I think in this last what decade, we really had a focus on mental health. Mm -hmm. I think it's crazy that actually it has such bigger effect than something that such as income that we kind of in general are taught from such a young age that higher income equals happier which is not always the case mm. um and but why specifically did you look into low-income countries and not maybe higher income or maybe looking at both higher income and low income and comparing mm-hmm. um yeah what was the motivation for just low income yeah i think predominantly it's because we're trying to do the most good we can and so we're kind of ambivalent about where people are in the world and but we want to look at well, where's the cheapest place where you could like have an effect? And so trying to do interventions like this in a rich country would be a lot more expensive and the cost effectiveness wouldn't be the same. But in terms of like the number of people you can reach and the effect that you can have, um, and also just the fact that like mental mm-hmm. health in low income countries is completely neglected. And mm-hmm. um, then that seems the area where there would be most opportunity to, to have a big difference. But we do think there are opportunities in rich countries as well. It's like mental health affects people across all countries and all income levels. Um, And so if it's well-being that you care about, there are potentially like policies that countries can implement that are going to increase the well-being of the population on average. And in the longer term, that's an area we want to look more at. So not just these specific kind of charity interventions where you're helping one person at a time, are there things we can do at a much bigger scale where you're trying to kind of change the nature and culture of society in some way so that you can benefit a lot of people through some policy change? This is such a huge finding to be able to say, actually focusing on well-being and mental health can actually have a better effect um, than your typical cash transfer. Mm-hmm. Um, so going forward, um, in terms of people listening, or not even people listening, but policymakers or NGOs, what implication does this have on those decisions that we make in terms of charitable donations, policies we they implement? Um, what can people take from this research? Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is the first study we've done. That's the first two things that we've compared. And as we do more research, we think it's likely we're going to find things that are even more cost effective for well-being. Um, so I wouldn't kind of urge everyone to like drop what they're doing mm-hmm. immediately and put everything on mental health, but you should certainly like consider if it's your own personal donations that you're thinking about, you should really like look at strong minds and um, as an option. If you are a government in a low income country and you're thinking about how to spend your health budget at the moment, most low income countries are putting hardly any of their health budget into mental health. And the money that they do spend is predominantly on psychiatric hospitals, um, which are not kind of great 
locations for people to recover from mental health. There's basically no kind of primary care mental health and maybe only like 4% of people in low income countries are getting any kind of support for depression and anxiety. So the argument would be that you should try to shift your resources, even if you can't increase your resources, at least shift the way you're spending your money to focus more on these community led group therapy sessions where we've got increasing evidence that this works. And trouble is, though, that there just hasn't been a lot of research done on psychotherapy in low income countries. There's quite a bit in high income countries now, but not so much in low income countries. And so people are often nervous about funding things because they'll say, well, are these things cost effective? But you can only get data on interventions if somebody like funds some interventions that you can like test. And so it's a bit of a chicken and egg problem. So we need people to kind of invest in testing different programs, figure out what's going to work best. And so we can build the evidence base so that more people will be confident to put more of their resources because they'll have seen the benefits it's had elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And I just had a thought about, like you said, the, the limited amount of research there are on specifically psychotherapy in low income countries. Strong Minds, like you said, only focuses on Uganda and, yeah, and Zambia. And Zambia. Yeah. But do you think the effectiveness of psychotherapy would be hugely dependent on the culture and like the country you're you're looking at because if let's say that it's a culture that kind of doesn't really believe that mental health really is important or doesn't really exist Mm -hmm. there's not the openness to be able to actually even go to psychotherapy in the first place because of that those kind Mm -hmm. of culture barriers is that something that needs to be more researched in or do you think that will also vary the cost effectiveness of cash transfers versus psychotherapy if we in a country that, let's say, doesn't take into account mental health or dismisses mental health mm. completely. Yeah, I just think we don't have lots of data about how these models are going to work in different cultures and countries, and we'll only get that data by trying it. And I mean, across the whole field of development economics, people are doing randomized controlled trials to find things that work. And then if they find strong evidence, then they're trying to scale them up. And some things don't scale very well. And when you take them into a different setting and other things do. Um, So it's not always the case that like you find one thing that works and you're like, this is it. We're going to spread this around the world. And it's the silver bullet to save everything. Like it is context dependent. And so I think what's important is to have a strong like theory behind what is driving the benefit of this intervention. What is it specifically about it? And making sure you can like keep that core causal element, but then kind of translate the method to fit in the culture that you're going into. Mm. So for example, one of my colleagues at HLI um, is based in Ecuador, and she's about to run a pilot project using the same model as Strong Minds, um, but in Ecuador, um, in a Latin American setting. Um, so I'm really fascinated to see kind of how this plays out and like which things kind of work the same and which things are different. Um, and I think this is the, exactly the kind of thing we want to be seeing people trying to like take these models that have worked in one place and then test them to see if they do work in another place. And, and if so, scale them up. And is there an area of research that HRI is looking to go into? Because this is the first, like you said, first comparison mm-hmm. that you've yeah. done. Is there future comparisons that you kind of want to delve a bit more into? Or do you want to expand the research you've currently just done um, into, like you said, different countries? What's the vision um, for the next, what, five, 10 years? Yeah, yeah, good question. So I think we're thinking now about 
what we can look at at three different scales. So right now we're focused on what we would call micro interventions. So you're just delivering an intervention to a person on the ground and measuring the benefit per person. Um, and there are other things that we can look at that are similar. So the next thing we want to look at is deworming charities. Mm. So this is one of the charities recommended by GiveWell, um, but they haven't looked at it in terms of subjective well-being. And so we want to do that analysis using our measures um, and see what comes out when we do that. Um, and then there are other things that there are some studies that show promising effects for well-being in terms of cataract surgery and um, installing cement floors um, for people who live in homes that don't have any kind of flooring. And so that can like breed parasites and cause health problems. So there's some interesting data around that. Um, and also we're particularly interested in digital mental health apps um, because this offers a way to like provide things like CBT to people through their phones without necessarily needing access to a, an in-person psychotherapist or even a community worker. Um, so we want to have a look at that as well. So that's the micro intervention side. Then we want to look at kind of specific policy recommendations, um, particularly around kind of public health matters. So things like lead regulation. Um, it's not really an issue in high income countries, but in low income countries, there's like lead in paint and in all kinds of other materials. Um, and these have like detrimental impacts on the development of children and, and huge effects on the rest of their life. And um, so we want to look at this in terms of well-being um, and there's a coalition kind of building around the world now. GiveWell just gave some money to the Center for Global Development to run a, a big project looking at um, lead poisoning and what can be done. And so we want to contribute to that in some way if we can. Um, similarly, um, like access to pain relief in low income countries. So if you have a, like a terminal condition in a high income country, you're going to get morphine and pain relief so that like you're not going to suffer but in low-income countries, they just don't have access to this tool. Even though like, opiates are really quite cheap, there's a kind of political and cultural like concern around opiates and how they should be used. And lots of clinicians in low-income countries haven't been like trained in how to use them. And so a lot of people with these terminal conditions are just not getting any pain relief at all. And um, so that's two kind of policy things we could look at. Um, and then broadly, in the longer term, we want to think about, well, if you were a national government and you're putting together your manifesto, how would you construct a policy manifesto if your goal was well-being? Um, and what would that look like for, for different types of countries? Do you think um, that there should be a shift towards a focus on well-being in policymaking? Because we learn about our economic goals, our inflation, political rights, health. Could that all fit under the umbrella of well-being or do you think well-being should be like a separate branch that also is included in key manifestos for politicians? I mean, I personally think well-being of the population should be the goal of governments. Um, and there's also some data showing that looking at kind of well-being levels rather than voting intention is a better predictor of whether a party gets re-elected. Mm. So I, it makes political sense to focus on well-being just as well as for me it being like the right thing to focus on. Um, and I think increasingly governments are starting to look at this, I mean, mostly high income countries at the moment. And um, I think the most famous example is New Zealand. So they published a, a well-being budget where they had some specific well-being goals for the population and even 
things that kind of may not have been great to the economy overall. They made different choices because they were interested in well-being. And I think a lot of countries are looking at the New Zealand case study as, as like a pilot, really. Like, so how does it go in New Zealand if they try and implement this approach? And if it goes well, then I think we'll see more countries doing it. And there's there's an organization called the Wellbeing Economy Governments Partnership, um, which is I think it's five countries at the moment which are collaborating with each other to try and work out how they might implement more well-being policy making in their own countries. And so that includes, um, I think, it's New Zealand, Iceland, Scotland and Wales and one other country, Finland. Finland is the other one. UK yeah. needs a catch. I mean, not even UK, England. England, needs a catch yeah. Up. So yeah, yeah, England's a bit behind compared to like Scotland and Wales. They're very much interested in like well-being of the population. Um, England, not so much. Although, to the UK's credit, I think like 2009, David Cameron really pushed for like the measurement of happiness mm. and well-being statistics. And I think people were a bit skeptical of this at the time, and then like laughed at it a little bit. Um, but we now have like over a decade of data on well-being in the UK and we can learn a lot about what's influenced it. Um, and then in like 2013, the OECD, which is kind of like a think tank for, for high income countries and gives them advice on like economic measurement. They did a big report. This is probably like the best report there is on measuring well-being. And they recommended to all their member countries that they should be measuring well-being alongside the other metrics that they already track. What benefits would, let's say I'm just taking a really cynical view, mm -hmm. uh, um, what benefits to a politician or to just an, uh, a general economy will, will there be, like prioritising well-being? What immediate like, benefits do you think society as a whole will, will have? What will that translate to? What kind of, yeah, what kind of Yeah, what other metrics yeah. will it change? Yeah, well, yeah. So first off, like economically, I think if people are happier, they do tend to be more productive. Like if, if you're depressed, you can't really contribute to like your work mm. um, or your family and like raising your children. I think there's studies in the UK that show that kind of the mental health of a mother has such a big impact on like a child's mental health. But that continues throughout that person's life. Um, and so I would hope like a bigger focus on countries would be on prevention of, of mental health, um, particularly because I think for many people, mental health conditions first arise in like adolescence. Um, and if we can find ways to support like children and young people with mental health, um, this can have significant benefits over like the longer term, rather than waiting until someone's like in a bad way and then trying to like treat them. Mm. Um, so more focus on prevention would be good. Um, and so, yeah, economic benefits from people just being more productive and like more happy at work. And um, I think there are social benefits because like if people are happier, like they're nicer to be around and relationships <laughs> are like just so key to mental health. I yeah. think a lot of people are worried about kind of like loneliness and the number of people who live on their own now and don't have much social contact. Mm. Um, and so what can governments do to try and like encourage more social cohesion? And we have quite an individualistic culture, which is all about like, I need to like keep working my way up the ladder, like do better than everyone else. Um, and I think if we can foster more of a kind of collaborative culture where, because if, if one person like gets better relatively, that means other people have got worse. And so it's this kind of zero sum game. So we need to find ways that we kind of can all become happier um, over time rather than like 
some people benefiting at the expense of others yeah so, wow so true it's just so mm. right and I think it's so great that there are institutes like HLI that um are really focusing on well-being because I think give well um obviously helps people that want to make a difference direct their money in the most effective mm-hmm. way would you would HLI ever want to work with give well um to find the most effective way that with combined methods because you focus on subjective mm-hmm. well-being and give well focuses more um on other measures um would you ever want to work together to find what's actually the best way to do good yeah so we we talk to give well quite regularly and like we're big fans of their work i mean they're the inspiration really for like what we're trying to do like we're just we're following a similar approach just with a different metric really um and so yeah i think they're planning to publish a report um, in the next six months um, with their views on how they might use subjective well-being and, and what that would mean for evaluating things like psychotherapy. So we're excited for that to come out, um, which is really good. But I, I do also think there's benefit in kind of the world of philanthropy for like people taking different approaches. Um, because if you kind of if everyone all just focuses on one organization with one specific approach, you may be missing things and so I wouldn't necessarily want it to be the case that like either like our approach replaces GiveWell's approach Mm. I think they should both be happening at the same time and we learn from each other Um, and so as a result kind of we find more things Um, and there is kind of because different funders also have like different philosophical intuitions about what they care about um, and so it's important that there are people kind of serving those different perspectives on like how they want to use their donations. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, my last, last question mm-hmm. for you is if you were in an ideal world, if wellbeing was prioritised, what would that look like for you? What would be the ideal situation for governments across low income countries um, in terms of doing the most good? What, what would that look like to you? So I'm just going to give you like a hot take off the top (laughs) of my head. I mean, I would just start off by looking at these kind of these global surveys of well-being and figuring out which things seem to have the most impact on people's like long term life satisfaction and then focusing policies around those things. So I think people have got the message that like unemployment is really bad for well-being and because the data shows that when you become an unemployed, that tends to have a long-term negative impact on your life satisfaction. Other like negative events in your life, like maybe like getting some form of disability or your life partner dies or something, they have very sudden negative impacts, but people then tend to kind of adapt to the new situation and their happiness returns. Whereas unemployment, um, people tend to get stuck in a lower level. Um, so it would be those kinds of things that I would want people to focus on, like trying to avoid unemployment or get people back into some kind of like working environment, because it's not just the fact you lose your income when you're unemployed. It's you also lose this kind of your purpose in life, mm-hmm. like the thing that you do, the way that you contribute. Um, and so it has a number of different factors that influence people's lives. So, yeah, that's one that definitely springs to mind. Um, And yes, something just more around like relationships and social cohesiveness. Um, I just think people underestimate like how important that is for your well-being to to have people in your life that you feel you can rely on. Mm. Um, And so how how can you implement policies that kind of promote this more 
Um, it's a tricky question, yeah. uh, but I think the more people who start thinking about these kind of things, the better. Oh, and of course, like the final one would be just like much more focus on spending on mental health services, particularly like at an earlier stage mm. rather than like waiting until people are like in a really bad way. Like often I hear cases of people like they say they've got depression, but then they get put on a waiting list. And it's not until it gets really bad that like that is the trigger that like, oh, OK, we're going to like have a session with this person now. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, if we can try and get away from that kind of situation, that would be really good. Yeah, because the waiting list in the UK are, it's ridiculous. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. I've talked to people and it's like a year or two and it's just insane that you, you can't get the same access. Let's say if I broke my arm, you can't, mm -hmm. like I go straight to the doctors. Yeah. If I got mental illness, I can't, I have to wait a year before I even see anyone to even start looking at getting help. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, and if you look at a low income country, there's just, there's nothing. nothing. You're not even on a waiting list. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that you can wait for. Um, and yeah, in some low income countries, like the response to people who have like things like schizophrenia or psychosis, they, they get chained to trees and like put in cages and treated almost like animals. And this is just crazy. I, I know mental health in the UK is not as good as it could be. But, no, but that's... when you think about the rest of the world, it's like the situation people find themselves in is like really terrible. It's crazy. Yeah. And with that kind of situation is... Is psychotherapy the kind of longer term solution? Because do you have to start educating not just people, but like also like governments about, you know, what mental health is before they can even implement these kind of policies? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, stigma is just a big problem. I mean, even in the UK, I think it's only in the last 10 years or so that people have been more open about talking about their mental health. It's been a really like concerted campaign, getting celebrities to share their experiences and encouraging people to talk, particularly like men as well, who mm. tend to like keep their emotions inside. Um, and so, yeah, stigma has reduced quite a bit in the UK, even just in the last 10 years. But I mean, around the rest of the world, like stigma is very strong. So like people who are depressed like might be kind of in denial about it and they don't want to tell anybody because it's a taboo and they don't want to be kind of like shunned by the rest of society so people don't seek help even though they may be suffering inside similarly like people who train to be like physicians in low-income countries don't tend to specialize in mental health because they just don't see it as a problem mm. and the decision makers and that like the people in government also like have stigma around mental health and they might not think it's an issue or like not something to talk about so then not thinking that they want to put any resources towards that Yes. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, th Barry, thank you so much for coming in today. My pleasure. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and I've learned so much. This is a Next Gen Wellbeing podcast. Next Gen Wellbeing gives young people the platform, resources and support to contribute ideas, initiatives and campaigns that promote youth wellbeing and tackle deteriorating mental health amongst the next generation. Visit nextgenwellbeing.com to find out how we're fighting back against the youth mental health crisis. Purple Radio Podcasts. Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio Podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.